And so as a lifelong resident of Bradford County, which I mentioned earlier, one of the more rural counties in the state, uh, one of my goals is to make sure that every corner of the Commonwealth understands the benefits of PA529 plans. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. This is, of course, a podcast about how state and local governments spend $4 trillion each year. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined, as always, by my co-host, friend, colleague, fiscal policy wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. And uh, it... uh as I have a, a slight chicken update, as I tend to every other episode, it um, it occurred to me that I'd never shared with listeners what my chickens' names are, which I'm sure, I, I can't believe we haven't gotten letters about this, really. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure this is the thing people are wondering right now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've only got four of them, so I can actually tell them apart and, and therefore name them. Um, but uh, one of them is... Uh, Named after Hey Hey, the chicken in Moana. Um, she kind of marches to her own tune, much like that bird. Uh, <laughs> the other one, I named her after Amelia Earhart. <laughs> so her name's Amelia because she is super fun to watch. She will, like, I swear, take off like a B-24 B bomber. She's gray as well. I mean, she'll just, like, run with her wings out, like, super fast and get airborne. She can fly higher than any of my other birds. Um, and then the other two are the silkies. Um, thankfully I can tell them apart because one is slightly smaller than the other. And, and I struggled for a while on names, but my son and I have you know, like what, 15 years after the big, big, um, rush of, of people getting into Harry Potter, he and I are getting into reading the books now. And so we named the Silkies Hufflepuff. The larger one is Huffle and the smaller one is Puff. Well, that, that worked out swimmingly for you. Uh, Two names in one, but distinct and uh, <laughs> rolls off the tongue. That that works out well. Nice work. <laughs> Thanks. If I get any more, I'm going to have to agonize over more names. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's great. It's very, very important to uh, to make sure that we're humanizing uh, the chickens. And I was calling them the chickens, <laughs> but in fact, they, they have names and personalities and, and all that good stuff. So appreciate <laughs> yeah. you sharing that. They don't, they don't know their names. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But nonetheless, but nonetheless. <laughs> so uh, we have a, on, on the podcast today, we are going to do something a little bit different. That is uh, I actually think something that we'll probably be doing more of in the not too distant future. And that is spending some time in conversation with uh, an elected official, in this case, the uh, elected treasurer of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Treasurer Stacey Garrity. And we're also going to be joined by uh, Dr. Kyle Kopko, who is the executive director of the Center for Rural Pennsylvania. And they're going to tell us about some work that they have been collaborating on as of late on 529 college savings plans and the some of the differences between 529 savings plan uh, contributions and patterns between rural and urban areas. Interesting stuff. And, you know, that in and of itself, I think, is a really important point and and part of the reason that we're interested in talking to elected officials particularly treasurers and CFOs because it, it does give you some sense of just the the enormous variation in the work that they do when we talk about state and local public money the treasurer obviously is involved in in a lot of just the managing of actual funds acting like a a bank or acting like the 
the, the entity that, that moves money around in and out of state government. But state treasurers are also involved in a whole range of other activities, things that you may not even necessarily realize. 529 college savings plans, unclaimed property, debt management, borrowing money, uh, investing money on behalf of local governments in local government investment pools and all sorts of other programs that don't necessarily neatly fit under any other umbrella. So they end up with the state treasurer's office or the uh, uh, county treasurer or the local government CFO. And you know, as, as public money walks, we want to hear from these folks. We want to hear about their experiences and, and give everybody a better understanding of the work that goes on in those offices and what it means for state and local public money writ large. So Liz, I know in your, uh, in your time covering and, and working with state treasurers and, and local government CFOs, you certainly have a lot of your own experiences. When you reflect on that, on the role and the, the position that they, they play in the landscape of public money, what's top of mind for you? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that state state treasurers do have a wide range of roles, but the kind of your average your average uh, voter doesn't necessarily know much about that. And 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 maybe part of it is is because it can tend to vary a little bit from state to state in terms of what straight, state treasurers do. I would say, as a reporter, um, when whenever I've been on a, a treasurer's uh, press release list, like a, a very noticeable chunk of those press releases. Press releases are about unclaimed property. That is that is a huge area for state treasurers, like you know everywhere, um, as well as debt management, as you mentioned. Um, some choose to get more involved in in pensions. Um, others more involved in uh, public works issues. So, it's it's an interesting kind of variety from from my perspective. And um, I used to go to the annual conference in D.C. for NASAC, the National Association of State Accountants, Controllers and Treasurers. Uh, a tough one to remember. Um, and, and I would meet folks there and kind of and you get that kind of broad overview. A lot of that was usually about federal policy and that kind of thing. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to us getting to sit down and chat more intimately with people and really kind of understand what's going on with them, what their priorities are and, and what their day to day is like. Definitely. And it's such an important conversation now, given the, all the federal money making its way into state governments, as we've talked about, and state treasurers really are on the on the front lines of that, receiving those dollars, creating the administrative and, and statutory and legal structures to, to manage those dollars, trying to create the right kinds of transparency, visibility into what's being done with that money. Uh, so the job's more important now than ever, given all this money that's making its way into states from other sources. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod two wonderful guests here to tell us about some of the goings-on in Pennsylvania. We're joined, uh, of course, by Pennsylvania State Treasurer and uh, friend of the pod, I would say, uh, Treasurer Stacey Carity. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. And we also have uh, with us Dr. Kyle Kopko, who is the Executive Director of the Center for Rural Pennsylvania. And they're here to tell us about a variety of things going on in the treasurer's office, but uh, particularly 529 savings plans. Thank you both for taking the time to join us and uh, look forward to the conversation. It's great to be with you and be on the pod. It's really, really great to have you both. Before we get into kind of the meet here, I, I want to tell a little bit about 
uh, give, give the listeners a little background on yourself. So uh, we'll start with Treasurer, Treasurer Garrity just quickly. Uh, what, what prompted you to run for office? Well, um, when I retired from the Army Reserves, and that was back in 2016, and that was because I had hit that thing called your mandatory retirement date. I had more than 30 years of service to the country under my belt, including three overseas deployments as part of Desert Storm. Now I've dated myself. Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. But my military career averaged, oh gosh, about 70 days a year, three weekends a month. And so initially when I retired, it was kind of nice to scale back because I did have a very exhausting full-time private sector position as well. But after about a year, I really felt pulled to serve again. What happened was a special election for an open congressional seat came about, and I reached out to my state rep to see if it would be good to run for that, um, and really more so just to meet the county and local leaders in the, con- in the congressional district because I did not have any background in politics. Mm-hmm. So I ended up jumping into the race, had a wonderful experience. I made it to the top 20% of the 31 candidates for the seat, and then when the state treasurer's race was kicking off, um, people remembered me from that race and they approached me to run. I was really hesitant at first. In fact, uh, I think my words to them were absolutely not. (laughs) Um, You know, I I was concerned about entering a statewide race without having run a campaign before. I'm from very rural Bradford County, but you know what? I prayed about it, thought about it, the doors opened up and I decided to run. You know, I basically thought, okay, after they couldn't find anybody, if not me, then who'll do it? So nobody expected me to win, but I did. And it's the first time an incumbent was unseated in a statewide race since 1988. So I am so grateful for the opportunity to continue to serve the public in this way. And I'm incredibly thankful for Pennsylvanians who had faith in me when they cast their vote. So that's, that's the short version. <laughs> Certainly a career marked with pub- by public service in, in many different forms. Um, and Kyle, you're director uh, for Center for Rural Pennsylvania. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and maybe why the heck we are having you on along with the Pennsylvania State Treasurer, because maybe in most cases, uh, people might not put those two together. <laughs> sure. So, I'm the executive director of the Center for Rural Pennsylvania, and the center is a legislative research agency of the Pennsylvania General Assembly. So we have several other sister agencies within the General Assembly, and we all have a different policy area focus that helps to inform the General Assembly's work. Uh, Taken together, you can kind of think of us like a state-level congressional research service, to give an example, at the federal level. For us, we were formed in 1987 at a time throughout the 80s whenever rural was going through a major transition in terms of manufacturing-based population change. And the General Assembly just didn't have a lot of great information or economic indicators about what was happening in rural communities. So we were essentially established as a state-funded think tank to help not only the legislature, but county commissioners, legislative, excuse me, municipal officials, nonprofit leaders all across the state uh, to help better understand rural conditions. And we maintain a comprehensive database of a wide variety of statistical indicators that compare and contrast rural and urban communities. So that way individuals can better understand how policy and conditions vary across the Commonwealth. 
And we also administer a grants program to our faculty at state universities to help conduct applied policy research, uh, also aimed at benefiting the General Assembly and informing their policymaking decisions. And we also have the ability to conduct our own internal research as well. And that's how this uh, particular study on 529 plans came together uh, through our internal research in cooperation with the uh, Treasury. Terrific. So speaking of that uh, urban-rural contrast, and especially as it relates to 529 savings plans, you all have an interesting report that you put out recently focused on exactly that issue, differences in, in rural and urban 529 savings accounts. If you could tell us a little bit about what motivated that work and, and give us the, the headline findings on it. Sure, I can I can start with that and then um, Kyle can jump in if he wants. But I really wanted to understand more about PA 529 account owners and how they use the program, specifically to help us understand how to better target our marketing and outreach efforts. And with rural outreach being one of my biggest priorities because as everybody knows, 48 out of 67 of our counties are rural. We really wanted to have more insight into how savings trends differed across the state. Um, also, in the second half of 2021, as part of the COVID-19 relief measures, the federal government was offering monthly advance payments of the child tax credit. And we really wanted to know if those payments led to more savings for our children's education. And I'll pick up there. And I, I also wanted to thank Treasurer Garrity because it was her staff at her uh, direction that reached out to our office. Um, this wasn't an issue that was initially on our radar, and we were very glad to learn and hear more about it. Uh, so in partnership with the staff at the Treasury Department, we were able to obtain the identified data on 529 savings account holders uh, over the past few years. And in total, we were examining more than 244,000 accounts dating from 2018 through the first quarter of 2022. And, and some of the chief takeaways is not only is uh, there a gap between urban and rural in terms of their savings, even once you account for uh, population differences between those two averages, we found that rural beneficiaries on average receive $56 less per quarter than their urban counterparts. Uh, and we introduced a regression model equation to help predict this, and we're accounting for a wide variety of factors, including age of the beneficiary, education level, and some other uh, salient indicators. And we're still finding that urban-rural gap. Um, we were also able to track contributions over time. And while contributions did go up in both urban and rural areas, over time, it was a sharper increase in urban than what it was in rural. And regarding the tax credit findings, we did find some evidence of increased contributions uh, during the third and fourth quarters of 2021. Uh, now, obviously, that's a, a correlation. We can't make a causal claim. But as these tax credits were coming online and being available to individuals, uh, there was uh, an increase in contributions uh, during that time period relative to previous quarters. So think about it like this. More than 60% of contributions to PA 529 investment plan accounts were made in counties designated as urban, and 84% of all PA 529 beneficiaries live in these urban areas. And so as a lifelong resident of Bradford County, which I mentioned earlier, one of the more rural counties in the state, uh, one of my goals is to make sure that every corner of the Commonwealth understands the benefits of PA 529 plans. 
as a fellow policy wonk, I will say it was very exciting to see a fixed effects regression in this report. That's not something we see a lot and certainly speaks to the credibility of the findings. So kudos for that. Well, thank you. And I, I want to give a shout out to um, two of our staff members who were instrumental in conducting this analysis. Uh, David Martin, our public policy data analyst, and Jonathan Johnson, our senior policy analyst. Uh, we were all involved in the statistical analysis, but uh, the two of them were uh, the chief architects of the model. That's, I mean, it sound, this sounds like a, a huge, a, a big effort and a big, uh, big collaboration as well. Um, I'm Curious, can the, the difference in savings levels and, and the, I guess, amount of who is who is saving, what do you attribute that gap to? Um, and then it, it, have you, is there, are you guys also considering the fact that maybe just some, some folks in rural counties are farmers and they, there is no intention to go to college. They're passing one farm off to the, to the kids, that kind of thing. So we know that there's a lack of awareness about PA 529 plans. I mean, I know that because I've traveled all 67 counties in 2021 and 2022. Um, and so in addition to that, our own research at Treasury shows that parents, they all have high expectations for their child's future education at birth. But to your point, there is less certainty for parents in rural counties. And we also learn that families have a lower level of trust in you know, banking and financial systems in these areas. And I can personally say I've witnessed this distrust. And um, I understand very well the concerns of families in these areas. And so helping them build a good financial future is near and dear to my heart. And I'll also say that some people still have the misconception that PA 529 plans are only for four-year degrees. And that's not true. They're for community. They're for technical schools. They're for qualified apprentice programs. Um, savings can also be used for certain K through 12 expenses, including tuition at private or religious schools. And, and just building off of what Treasurer Garrity said, and I, I second everything that she has to say, um, I, I think in terms of the rural urban gap, it's troubling given that these 529 savings plans can be used for a wide variety of opportunities, as she mentioned, not just a four-year college degree, but apprenticeship programs, technical training. We have tons of jobs in our rural communities. This is something I hear time and time again, but we need the workforce, the skilled workforce in, a, in order to fulfill a lot of those roles. And if rural residents aren't aware of these 529 plans or not engaging with them, that, that further disadvantages rural communities. And that's one of the reasons why my office exists. We wanna make sure that there are the same opportunities in terms of state policy in rural communities as what there is in urban areas as well. So it's a great analysis of the of the problem and certainly highlights uh, the the importance of taking some steps to, to try to maybe close that gap. What are you thinking about right now policy-wise uh, to potentially address some of these challenges? Okay, so, you know, I mentioned that outreach is one of my key priorities. So what we have done is we've expanded the number of staff dedicated to outreach, including hiring for the first time ever, a director of outreach and marketing. We also created three new positions for regional program relationship managers. They were just recently filled. So our outreach team, what they do is they attend county fairs, legislative programs, they put on webinars, they, you know, they go to all kinds of other events and really just to connect with people directly where they are. 
Um, they reach out to community organizations, educational institutions, and we really try, we're trying to establish partnerships. Um, because like I said, it is important to meet people where they are, you know, so I'm really happy that our outreach team is growing and we are doing uh, a great job connecting with more and more Pennsylvanians, but we, we have a lot more work to do, I will say. And just to build off that as well, I, I must say that this report has garnered a pretty significant amount of media attention already within the Commonwealth. And I know members of the General Assembly have also taken notice, too. So in addition to the Treasurer Garrity's outreach efforts, um, I think that members of the General Assembly, both in the House and the Senate, now have this on their radar whenever they engage with constituents uh, and their staff engage with constituents. Uh, they're able to point constituents towards these programs to save not just for college, as we've been discussing, but also mm -hmm. for technical training, apprenticeship, A-12 expenses. So I think that this report uh, really elevated those discussions. That's a great point, Kyle. Do you have any kind of early feedback on, on the, have you started doing the engagement? I should ask that, ask that first. <laughs> oh, we have started doing the engagement. In fact, um, Gosh, I'm trying to remember how many fairs we went to over the summer, but it was over 20. Uh, basically, year over year, we continue to double our efforts on what we're doing. So I think the feedback has been very good. Um, like I said, we just filled the three regional program relationship managers. So I expect that, um, you know, we'll have even a bigger difference this next year. And I want to emphasize the Keystone Scholars Program because that provides $100 investment for all PA newborns born after January 1st, 2019. So it's important to reach as many parents as possible to let them know about that. So if you know any new parents, let them know there's $100 waiting for their child's future. I also want people to know that they can open up, up an account with, with zero. You know, I, I think that this has been a great example of cross-collaboration uh, within state government. And obviously, Treasurer Garrity and her team are very concerned about rural issues. And we are so happy and grateful for that because Pennsylvania, not too many people may realize this, has a significant rural population. Uh, we were talking about this before the start of the show here. Uh, Pennsylvania is home to 3.4 million rural residents. So that's about a quarter of the state's population, and it's greater than 21 states' population. So if you're to take rural Pennsylvania and make it its own state, it's essentially Utah in terms of its population. And so when you think about the amount of economic activity, GDP that's generated there, it's, it's significant. And oftentimes, you might need to adopt distinctive policy solutions to address rural needs. And that's absolutely critical in a state like Pennsylvania. We're grateful for the opportunity to work across branches of government to meet the needs of our rural communities. Well, well put, Kyle. Uh, and certainly, I, I'm not the comparison to uh, the state of Utah in terms of the size of rural Pennsylvania. It really kind of brings that home. And before we let you guys go, um, we are recording this. We are recording this podcast in February, which is as everybody knows, Unclaimed Property Month. And I know Unclaimed Property is a really big deal for treasurers. It occupies a lot of your time. And so, Treasurer Garrity, can you tell us if you have any favorite stories of reuniting someone with their with their lost treasure? I sure do. Um, before I share a story, though, I just want to your listeners to know that we have over $4 billion, that's with a B, worth of unclaimed property in our state. 
And while it's nice to have that money, we really want to get it back in the hands of the hardworking Pennsylvanians that don't have it. And that means one out of 10 Pennsylvanians have unclaimed property. And before I tell you one of my favorite stories, um, I want to tell you just a fun fact that our vault in Pennsylvania is the largest operating vault in the country. And it was built in 1939. If you've seen the movie Ocean's Eleven, our vault is much more impressive than that one in that movie. Although we do not have George Clooney, I have to confess. <laughs> but in addition, in addition to the unclaimed property, we have military decorations, and I say those are the most uh, those are the priceless things that we have in our vault. And um, I've returned 319 military decorations and memorabilia since I took office. And that includes three bronze stars and three bronze stars, excuse me, and four purple hearts. You know, we also have, we have legions of merits, meritorious service medals, army achievement medals, um, army commendation medals, all kinds of campaign medals from every major conflict. We have certificates, we have pins, we have dog tags, that you name it, anything that was precious to that veteran we have in our vault. And we largely get those items from abandoned safe deposit boxes. Um, but one of my favorite stories is it, it involves a World War II veteran who was deceased. Um, so he was Frank Musto, and he served as a private during World War II. So he was in two major battles, one in Italy and one in France. And he was actually wounded in France where he received a Purple Heart. So he had a number of medals. Um, but some of those decorations were given to a son who later passed away. And the son who had passed away had stored them in a safe deposit box. And the rest of the family thought they were lost forever. So they came to Treasury. And the the items that the son had, they had his Bronze Star Medal. And they had a bullet casing engraved, U.S. Army Frank Musto, 1923 to 2008. And so when the contents of that safe deposit box came to Treasury, we connected with the Musto family. And so we did a little ceremony. And uh, in Westmoreland County at a VFW near Lo uh, Lower Burrell, and that was in May of 2022. And so I had the honor to return that Bronze Star. They had several generations of the Musto family there. They brought his shadow box with his uniform and all his medals. And it was really, it really touched my heart. And I think it touched theirs too, because they ended up a few months later visiting me here in Harrisburg and I gave them a personal personal tour of the vault and so we we became friends. Hard to think that you could connect military service, George Clooney and unclaimed <laughs> property all at the same time, but what you've done at Treasury <laughs> very very exciting. Uh anything else we didn't get to that, that anyone wants to mention? Uh I don't think on my end I just really want to thank um Dr. Kyle Kopko for all his uh support of for rural Pennsylvania, I think it's it's really important, and I've really enjoyed the collaboration with your team. Likewise, uh, we're we're grateful for the opportunity, and and thank you uh, both for having us on today. We're friends of the pod. <laughs> we love friends. <laughs> Well, thanks again to Treasurer Garrity and to Kyle Kopko for joining us. That was a really, I learned a lot actually during that, during that discussion on 529s and, and uh, rural savings. It's a really 
really important topic. And I think they they kind of framed it really well for us. I wanted to uh, kind of do the spin off a little bit on the topic of, of rural communities. I saw an article recently in Stateline, which is an initiative of, of the Pew Trust, Pew Charitable Trusts. It's a it's the headline is Texas Town tries a new model for saving rural health care. And um, it's about uh, a town, Bowie, Texas, and there's a there's a hospital there that had been closed for for a number of years, but through the federal rural emergency hospital program, which was actually approved a couple of years ago by Congress, um, this hospital has been able to sort of reopen on an emergency room basis. Essentially, what they're doing is trying to get at a piece of the the gap in rural, rural health care or access to care by taking the shuttered hospital and at least providing emergency services and, uh, and an observation center. And, um, and this was, like I said, uh, made possible through federal funds, uh, a program that provides higher Medicare payments and other dollars um, to rural hospitals. And so this is the story is about how other hospitals are kind of looking at this as a model. But one of the things that I, I also wanted wanted to point out was just some of the research that the article cites on on rural health care. So Texas is has been cited as, I guess, an epicenter of the rural hospital crisis. Uh, the article says that it leads the nation with temp 26 temporary or permanent closures since the beginning of 2010. Uh, many states are struggling with this program. Um, a study re somewhat recently reported that 143 rural hospitals have closed over the 15, past 13 years nationwide, another 453, uh, so more than twice as many, are vulnerable to closure. And to me, what this article kind of lays out in, in some really well, really well done reporting and details is just that the issue of of government really in, in rural areas. And it's, it highlights the, the, the big difference in, in the rural and why we have a rural urban divide. Rural is more spread out. Uh, and, and therefore the idea of quick access to anything <laughs> is, is much more of a challenge. And, and hospitals included. And, and I remember seeing some case studies and reading some stories earlier on in the, the pandemic in relation to broadband issues. I mean, broadband, rural uh, access to broadband is also an issue, but that also connects to healthcare, in the sense that um, uh, hospitals may need access to broadband um, or to you know, high speed Internet to be able to use some of the technology that they have to do these operations. And so it just everything kind of connects in that way. But this article just really, to me, highlights some of those things that Kyle Kotko was talking about as well. Just the, the gap in, in, in access and in, in the case of rural health care and college savings, it was, you know, just really about education and getting people informed. And that is a big, massive effort when you have a large swath. Of, of land and, and surface area to cover where people are spread out. I mean, that's that's part of it. And so with, with the healthcare crisis, access to um, quality medical care without having to drive, you know, within a 30 minute range is, um, should be something that everyone has, but in rural areas that is just just not happening. And so um, there, have, there were criticisms, I suppose, of this, this model of local, why can't we have a full hospital? But I think that, you know, this, notion of providing the absolute most important life-saving things that you can as 
within a reasonable distance seems to be at least uh, a, you know, a step in that direction of trying to address this gap. But certainly funding these things in hospitals in the pandemic have suffered greatly. I'm curious if you had had any additional thoughts along those lines, Justin. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great article, and I appreciate you bringing it to our attention, especially given the conversation that we had with uh, with Treasurer Garrity and, and Kyle Kopka, where the, these rural issues really do come into play. I mean, their analysis tried to control for everything else, educational attainment, local economic conditions that are measurable, all those other factors, and they find that there's still this kind of rural-urban divide. And as the treasurer mentioned, a lot of outreach, a lot of effort to to try to sort of get past what might really be a, a perception issue or a or a reputational issue or whatever it is, and and that's really important and something I think that's often overlooked, especially when we're talking about public money. We we don't often sort of think about those outreach and engagement and 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 kind of perception issues. The, thing, the other thing that really struck me about this too is if you zoom out a little bit and think about it in the context of what's been happening in kind of fiscal federalism, intergovernmental relations for a long time. The you know the, the name of the game, anybody who's been around policy analysis, especially at the at the federal level as of late, the name of the game is scale. Right? Getting getting to scale with programs and projects and our friends in the nonprofit space, particularly kind of big philanthropy, anything having to do with health, the goal is always to try to get to scale. And that's great. And nobody's necessarily opposed to that. Getting to scale means you tend to get better outcomes, more efficiently, more equitable outcomes, things that people care about. But scale does not always work in every situation. And so the question often then is how do you adapt what your policy says or what, what your policy is is trying to to accomplish with an eye toward the fact that certain places just don't have the ability to get to scale, like a lot of the rural areas that we're describing here. And so it's interesting to see in, in this story the way that that Medicare and I think to a degree Medicaid are are adapting some of those policy expectations a little bit, saying that there's let's let's do a little exception, a little carve out here given that all of the data sort of and all the experience suggests that this is not an area where the the emphasis on scale is necessarily going to accomplish the things that you want it to accomplish. So it's it's an interesting thing to, to see and it, it does make you wonder, especially in a post-COVID world, as population kind of redistributes around the country, then areas that, that remain cut off from access to some of these key services, will you see more of that kind of adaptation at the federal and state level to make sure that the public money gets to where it needs to get because without those exp- without those exceptions you don't necessarily have you know this the same business case to make for the kinds of investment that a lot of other places do have that's a really good point about scale and it as much as we get try to get efficiencies out of government some in there are some models where it's just not going to work that way and uh i think this what you pointed out is is, is a good good example of that Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association.